Again, thank you for your singing this morning, and if you take your Bibles again with me and turn to Romans chapter 9 as we move through these three chapters of Israelology, beginning here in chapter 9 and through 11, as we prepare for a conclusion to the book, the hinge pin of the book in chapter 12. I mentioned last week that uh, many view these three chapters as, as a parenthesis in the study of Romans. But the more that I have studied them and the more that I have looked into these three chapters, the more I'm convinced that Paul adds another area of theology. And the area that he is adding is Israelology. And that is a reminder of who Israel is and a distinction of them from the church. And so as we continue to think about that, though we also recognize that this is a very Jewish-oriented passage of Scripture. And so we're going to have to go back quite a bit. So I'm saying that to warn you that we're going to be in Romans, we're going to be in Genesis, and we're going to be moving back and forth, so get ready for that as well. But Israel's history is one of tremendous victory and devastating defeats. It is one of faithful obedience to the Lord and open paganism against Him. It is with keen interest that the ears of the believer pick up on the news coming from, coming from Israel today. But in light of that... Dr. Tony Evans, speaking of the United States, said this, When one nation under God becomes one nation apart from God, expect the consequences. When one nation under God becomes one nation apart from God, expect the consequences. As I saw that come across my Facebook and immediately posted it yesterday, I thought, you know, this is exactly where Israel's at. Israel exemplifies this to you and I who are believers in this country. The example that we have from Israel reminds us that very soon indeed, Israel will again be brought back under the Lord's protection and provision directly. He's already, they're already there, but directly. In light of that, we as a nation must stand with Israel. And we must be brought back under God instead of apart from Him. All we have to do is study the history of Israel to know that this is true. When Israel has been under God, they have been glorified by God. When they have been apart from God, they expect they should have expected the consequences. Nevertheless, the question remains, what about Israel? Can the believer rest in the promises of Romans chapter 8 as long as God seems far away from Israel? Because at the end of chapter 8, Paul promises that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he goes through a tremendous list of everything created. But when the believer looks at Israel, it seems as if God is far from them in this modern time. So the question is, if Romans 8 is true, what about Israel? What about Israel? The idea that I want us to focus on is this this morning. The remnant of chosen Israel provides evidence that Israel has not been separated from the love of God. You see, there is a reality that you and I must face. Not all Israel is Israel. And that's the theme of what Paul wants us to understand this morning. And so as we prepare to do this, let's go... I'm back before our Lord in prayer. We've read the text. Let's ask His blessing on that and our time spent in His Word today. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You and praise You for 
the clarifying issues that we find here in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. As we consider this, we recognize that this is somewhat of a difficult passage for us who are Gentile believers living in the modern age to be able to wrap our thinking around. And so I pray that you would give me the words to speak today. That they would speak to our hearts, knowing that as we have seen Israel, so will we as a country do if we do not turn back to you. Lord, we also recognize, though, that as Israel goes, so goes the believer. And because of that, we recognize that you will maintain a remnant of believers until you come back for your church. In light of that, I pray that we would be found faithful in sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ with those that we come in contact with. And that we would recognize that indeed you do have a time and a place and a purpose and a plan yet for your people Israel. And that as believers, we should be anxiously anticipating that day. Because all the promises and the blessings will come abundantly to them. And your name will be glorified. And you will be lifted above all as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, we do love you and praise you for this passage today. Give us an understanding of your word together as we study. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we plunge headlong into a very delicate and difficult passage where misunderstanding and selfish ideologies of men have often clouded the wonderful truth about God's righteous provision for Israel. Paul is answering the question that was caused in Romans chapter 8, and he's going to be doing so all the way through these three chapters. Because the question is, if all of this is true, and the doctrine of building all the way up from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 8 culminates at the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God, Since that is true, the believer has to ask the question, what about Israel? What about Israel? Because the Lord seems distant from them. And so Paul last week moved us through his heart as we began to understand why he grieved so uh, much, so unceasingly for the people of Israel. And as we recognize that, we recognize that he was wanting to clarify an issue for us. And I'm going to summarize last week's message in this. Paul didn't want us to misunderstand. Paul didn't want us to confuse the fact of his grief for joy. He didn't want you and I to believe that because at the hands of Israel he has suffered so greatly that he is joyous about what is happening to Israel in this day. So he spent... Verses telling us, reminding us of his grief and his sorrow for his people. But now he begins to answer the question. And as he answers the question, he is very blunt. And he is very direct towards Israel. And so we recognize that Israel is never, ever, ever called the church in all of Scripture. We must continue to maintain that. It is never called the church. We never... As the church, we never take the blessings of Israel, and so we will see that as we move through this passage. If nothing can separate us from God, what about Israel? And the answer is started here. Because the incredible power of our great God, as He provides for our secure salvation, should begin to come into clear focus for us as we reveal what God is doing through His people. So we begin first with the remnant in verse 6. The remnant the small group of believers, of which will become a theme throughout the message, that are Israel. This doesn't mean that those who are believers and Gentiles belong in this. That's not the case. You are a believer, praise the Lord for that, but you also have to be of the line of Abraham. And we will look at that as well. 
But then Paul gets into two distinctions because he's revealing something to us that should clarify our own uh, doctrine of election. Because you and I who know Christ as Savior have been elect. You've been chosen before the foundations of the earth were laid. But you are not unique in that. Because that has been taking place since before Abraham. And we're going to look and see two distinctions because Paul is going to illustrate his point that God is looking at a specific group of Israelites. One group, an elect group, who is not only spiritual or not only physical heirs of Abraham, but also spiritual heirs. And that group is going to give us the remnant. And so looking at the remnant in verse 6, verses 7 through 9, we look at the distinction and look at specifically Abraham and his family, his immediate family. And then we're going to go to the next distinction, which is Isaac and his immediate family. And so we begin here in verse 6. And we're going to spend some time here in verse 6 for a moment. Verse 6 says this in Romans chapter 9, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And the question comes this, What about Israel? Has God failed Israel? Well, obviously, we know that is not the case. And Paul is going to reveal that to us as we move through this passage. We are reminded in verse 6, we are reminded of the eight spiritual advantages of verses 4 and 5. Because Paul left us off last week reminding us that Israel had huge spiritual advantage, and yet they didn't take uh, all that they could have from that. Instead, they twisted it and mangled it. But I want to give those to you briefly again. These are found in verses 4 through 5. We looked at them last week, but they help us understand where Paul is going. These are the eight spiritual advantages. They have adoption, glory, covenants, the law, temple services, promises, the fathers, and the Messiah took humanity through the line of Israel. They were and had the spiritual blessings that we as Gentiles did not have. Yet despite this spiritual advantage, the time we currently live in is the time of the Gentiles. Despite God giving everything to Israel so that they would have the advantage in believing in Him, they rejected Him as a nation. So has God failed? Is God... In heaven going, I don't know what I did wrong, I gave them everything, and yet they rejected me. No, He is not. You see, God has not forgotten or completely rejected the people of Israel. But He has moved them off for a time. And here Paul begins to correct the faulty thinking of some that say that all born of the line of Israel are children of God as well as the faulty thinking that some have, even in our own world, that because of God's correction of Israel, they are no longer His people, and those of us who are believers and and Gentiles are now His people. Paul corrects both of those. But he does so in somewhat reminding us in a language very similar to two other passages. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 32. Keep your finger here in Romans. Jeremiah 32, verse 42. Jeremiah 32, verse 42. And this always comes at a time where Israel is suffering. They are struggling. Jeremiah 32, verse 42. 32, verse 42 says this, For thus says the Lord, 
Just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am good, I'm going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. Even though Israel is being chastened, has God forgotten them? No. Even though Israel is suffering tremendously because of their rejection of God, is God, has God forgotten them? No. Turn, if you will, to another passage. Uh, Isaiah chapter 55. Go back one book to Isaiah 55, verse 11. Isaiah 55, verse 11. And again, the Lord says, So shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Here's the realization you and I must understand. When the Lord spoke the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and added to that the Palestinian covenant, added to that the Davidic covenant, Added to that, the new covenant. The promises that came from the word, from the mouth of the Lord, will be accomplished, just as He said they would. No one likes to be punished for wrongdoing, and we are often confronted by wrong when we have, uh, or rather, when we are committed, when we have been confronted rather with wrong, we have this attitude in ourselves where we defend ourselves, whether we're guilty or not. You say, now wait a minute. You're, you're condemning me for wrongdoing. It wasn't me. In fact, I dare say that if you were to go ask the inmates at the prison in Burlington if they were innocent, most of them would say, yes, absolutely I'm innocent. It, unless they've been humbled by some circumstance in their life. You see, in our society, we like to believe that we are innocent when indeed we are guilty. God's Word will not fail, and it has not failed. When we look at the people of Israel, just because they are going through chastisement does not mean that God has failed them. The word for failed here means to become inadequate, to do what it is supposed to do. We just looked in Isaiah where that is not even possible. God's Word will be found. The Word of God will be fulfilled. So why is Israel not relishing in the spiritual advantages that were given to them? And we look here at the end of verse 6 and we recognize something. God has a sovereign choice. And we're going to build upon this theme for the next couple weeks. God's sovereign choice is called election. And it is first found here in in relationship to Israel in verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Remember that Paul is very deliberate, as we saw last week, in distinguishing Israel from the church. Israel never is called the church, and the church is never called Israel. So if Paul is not talking about all believers, Jew and Gentiles, being a new spiritual Israel, then what is Paul saying? Paul is narrowing the focus by making a distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. To be a physical Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does not necessarily make one a recipient of God's blessings of salvation. It didn't then, and it doesn't now. 
The true Israel is the believing remnant within physical ethnic Israel. So in other words, Israel is found in Israel. Ethnic Israel is not all blessed with salvation. They have all the spiritual advantages. That doesn't mean they have salvation. Ethnic Israel has taken over for the short term. However, in this spiritual Israel, these are the ones who took those spiritual advantages, applied them to their hearts and to their lives, and have come to know Christ as Savior. One commentator says, there always has been a faithful remnant to Israel. To paraphrase verse 6 of Romans 9, it would read, For not all who are of Israel are Israel. There is a true Israel within the nation Israel, namely the remnant. We continue to struggle with this as Christians. Because a number in our country would consider themselves Christians. Whether that is because they were born to Christian parents, or they live in a Christian nation, or because they go to church on Sunday that claims to be Christian, that doesn't make them true Christians. So we wrestle with it in our own society. And those of us who are true Christians are judged by the fake Christians. Does that mean that the gospel is dead? No. So why would we think that Israel has passed from the scene? Paul begins to make some distinguishing marks here as he moves into verses 7 and nine, seven through 9. He says, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as re, are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. As we look at these verses, we recognize first in 7 and 8, that not all born of Abraham are part of this remnant, are part of the spiritual Hebrews. Paul illustrates his point by beginning where any discussion defining Israel must, back to Abraham. God's call of and promises to Abraham is the beginning of the story of the group of people called the Hebrews. It is the basis for both physical and spiritual Israel. God promised in Genesis chapter 12 that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And He promised him further that he would have a son through whom the blessings of the promises would flow. Now we know the story. Abraham and Sarah, far past the years of childbearing, tried to help the Lord out by deciding to make an heir through Hagar, Sarah's bondservant. So Ishmael is born of that union. And Abraham brings him to the Lord and desires Ishmael to be the son of promise. Turn to Genesis 17. That was all the background. Turn to Genesis 17. And we're going to see the Lord's response to this. Genesis 17. Beginning in verse 19 and 20 as well. The Scripture says this, and and this is where Abraham has just said, in verse 18, says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says this, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. 
and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. As we recognize what is going on, we recognize that God is bringing to a conclusion His election. The Lord's response was that Ishmael was not the chosen one. He was the one there. He was the one that was already born. He was the one that Abraham said ought to take his place. But a child that came through Hagar was not the elected child, was not the chosen child. The one to come through Sarah would be. You see, the covenant then was sealed. If we move through the passage and we look at the context of the passage, the covenant was sealed with a sign of circumcision done on everyone from Abraham all the way through to Ishmael as a sign that the covenant indeed would take place. And so everyone from Abraham through to Ishmael was circumcised as Hebrews. And yet, God said, that's not the chosen child. In fact, let's look at his choice back in Romans chapter 9, verse 9. And we have uh, continued in the context here. It says, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This is adding to the context of which we just considered. Paul quotes back from Genesis chapter 21, the verse I just read you in verse 12, to reveal that even though Ishmael was sealed as a Hebrew, he was not the son of promise. Ishmael, though, having the sign of circumcision, was not the elected one of God through whom the promises of God are going to flow. Isaac would be the spiritual descendant, the son of promise, and therefore the image of the believing remnant. By choosing Isaac over Ishmael, God establishes a pattern of election that continues to this day. And I want you to know this. Because as believers, you too have been elected. You were not chosen based upon any merit that you may have brought. You were not chosen based on any uh, blessings or man's value that might be ascribed to you. You were chosen by God's independent choice. And the reasons for that are contained within Him, and we don't know them. But praise God, if you know Him as Savior, that you are elect. Praise God for the spiritual remnant of Israel. Not choosing the one man chose. Choosing the one that God chose in His independent choice. His independent choice. By choosing Isaac over Ishmael, God establishes a pattern of election that continues to this day. And it is still not only happening in believers who are Gentiles, it is happening in believers who are Israelites. And Paul continues then in verses 10 through 13 by saying this. He says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for through the twins, or for though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. 
Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As we move into this passage, we recognize now the distinction. Uh, Abraham's family and now Isaac's family. And we must understand this. There is no advantage in election in birth. And let's look at it. Verses 10 and 12. It says, not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Paul moves into the second distinction, providing more clarity on the issue of election. The cultural, natural, and normal practice would have made Esau the chosen of the twins. But the reason for the choices of God are hidden in himself, and we find that neither conception, nor birth order, nor actions factor in the choice of God. In fact, now look at verse 12. It says, And it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. The natural, normal, cultural thing would be for Esau to have received the blessings of promise. But he did not. The normal, natural thing would have been for Esau to have received everything that was going to transfer through him, but God said he's not the chosen one. He's not the one I have elected. They were conceived at the same time. Birth order had nothing to do with it, nor actions. Yet verse 12 quotes from Genesis 25 and 23, where the Lord reveals that the older will serve the younger. The Lord tells Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. Birth order has nothing to do with it. They were twins conceived at the same time. Birth order had nothing to do with it. Verse 11 reveals what did have to do with it. For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's choice according to his, or God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, again, we have God's independent choice. God's independent choice. When we consider the doctrine of election, when we consider the remnant of Israel, or the uh, believers who are Gentiles today, we must recognize that election is solely based upon the decision of our Lord. And Paul is about to say, in fact, uh, we'll say this next week, look at verse 14 of the same chapter. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. You see, in God, whatever the reason for His choices were, they are righteous and they are just, and they are not dependent upon you and I. They are dependent upon Him. In the middle of this narrowing picture, Paul reveals the distinction. Jacob was chosen before anything by either of the boys had been done for good or bad. But the distinction comes from the Lord. Those whom He chooses and those whom He does not choose. And this is done for reasons that are hidden in Him. And God is righteous. And there is no injustice in Him. So, let's look at one other factor. One other factor, verse 13. Is there any advantage because of heart? Any advantage because of heart? Verse 13 says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Perhaps the greatest difficulty with election comes in the scope of this verse 13. Paul is quoting from Malachi chapter 1, verse 21, where the individual people of Jacob and Esau are long gone, but their nations still exist. 
So the idea that Paul has here and that Malachi had, as he wrote, was an issue of nations, not individuals. God loved Jacob. In other words, God chose Jacob's descendants. God chose Jacob's descendants. But God hated Esau. One of the things that we struggle with in election is because our reaction to this is conflicted. What does this mean? How could God hate anybody? How could God hate any nation? How could God hate the ones of His own special creation? But you and I must understand the limitations of English. Because the word for hate means that the people of Israel, as illustrated, or people of Esau, as illustrated by Esau himself, were disregarded in contrast to preferential treatment. Hated means God didn't choose him. Hated in English means that God did not select Esau's life to be the heirs of promise. He chose Jacob's line to be the heirs of promise. Commentator Richard Freeman says the illustration of Isaac and Jacob gives us a wonderful picture of God's sovereign election of Israel. The history of Israel is marked by an elect remnant. Not chosen on the basis of personal merit or physical descent, but by divine calling. It is this remnant of Jewish believers that Paul is speaking about when he says, for not, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Only this remnant is the true Israel, through whom God will fulfill His promises made to the patriarchs. So when Paul asks this question, what about Israel? What our answer must be as believing Gentiles is this. God has not forgotten Israel. God is still working and ministering and alive and active in the remnant of Israel. In fact, recent statistics reveal that Jews are coming to know Christ at an astounding rate today. Because God is still working through the remnant of Israel. Is God done with them? Absolutely not. Has God turned His back on them? Absolutely not. Because if God had turned His back on them, then it would be possible for Him to turn His back on you and I. And Romans chapter 8 says, impossible. Impossible. Will not happen. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Having waded deep into Hebrew history, we stand confident and secure as believers. Paul's first argument for the reality that we can have a fast confidence that we who believe cannot be removed from the love of God is found in the protection and the selection of the believing remnant of Israel who has always remained no matter what the nation endured. From the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Romans to the modern age, there's always been a remnant of believing Israel. And there always will be. I hope your love for the people of promise is growing. Because when Paul says this, when he speaks of them in verse 8, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants, he is not talking about you and I. He's talking about the remnant of Israel. And I hope your love for the people of promise is growing. The history of the Hebrews beautifully illustrates the love our Lord has for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. 
Romans chapter 8 fits so beautifully in with Romans chapter 9 if you understand it in the context of biblical history. It should bring bright clarity to the reality that there is nothing of merit in us to give God reason to call you. Why you are called according uh, to His will, I do not understand. Why I'm called in the election of God's will, I do not understand. But I praise God that I am. I praise God that you are. And it brings bright clarity to the reality that there was nothing in us. God didn't look down and say, yeah, that guy looks like he would serve me well. In fact, when we look at the heart of Jacob, do you know what we find? Esau would have been the better human selection. Esau was the one who forgave Jacob. Jacob was the shyster. He was the one always trying to to wheel and deal something. Jacob was the one who wrestled with the Lord. Jacob was the one who did everything he could to get his way without doing it the right way. And he paid for it. But God still blessed him. But if it were me making that decision, Esau was the one who was righteous. Esau was the one who was tricked out of his birthright. Esau was the one who was tricked out of the promise and the blessings. And Esau was the one who forgave Jacob when he came back. It's no advantage because of the heart. There's no merit in us. We should use this as a point of application for you and I. You had an opportunity this past week at the fair to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If you don't know who God's elect are, how dare you discriminate who you share the gospel with? How dare you discriminate because you don't think they'll ever believe? Say, well, I've tried with them even. I don't care. Try again. Share the gospel with them because you don't know who's elect. Never let appearances keep you from sharing the love of Christ with your neighbors. We do not know who. We don't know why we are called, but God does. And for the people of promise, this is Israel. For the people of of promise, God will fulfill His promises. God will bring it. The conclusion, because it is an everlasting covenant, and the Word of God will stand forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, as we bow our heads in prayer before you today, we have dealt with a passage that can be difficult to understand, can be confusing in our modern world. So I pray that uh, there was clarity brought to it today. And not only that, that there are some areas of application we can draw from it in reaching our own world because we do not know who is elect. We know that salvation works the same way for the Jew and for the Gentile. And because of that, election works in a very similar way as well. We do not know who is called, who is elected by you. But we pray that when we encounter those who are, that we will share the gospel boldly, passionately, and completely, no matter if they are wealthy, whether they are the bum on the street, or whether they are the middle-class person who's just a good old boy. I pray that we would share the gospel faithfully and completely. But Lord, I also pray this, that your people, Israel, will soon realize the promises that have been made to them in the Old Testament through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through David, through the New Covenant, through the Palestinian Covenant. 
that they soon would be able to enjoy and partake in the blessings and the privileges of all that their spiritual advantage offers to them. I pray for the salvation of the people of Israel. I pray for the salvation of our own people as well. Lord, we recognize that one nation under God cannot stay there if we are one nation separated from you. As we recognize that truth, I pray that your name would be glorified in the way that we reach out and that your name would be glorified as it is complete and satisfyingly bringing about the conclusion of the promises made. Lord, we love you and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.